Podcast One production. Hi, I'm Nat Kringudis. And I'm Cecilia Ramsdale. Welcome to The Wellness Collective, a podcast where we invite you to be part of our wellness community to share, learn and live better. Cecilia, we're back with another episode of The Wellness Collective. This is an exciting one because if you listened to the last episode we published, we talked about... Uh, some people that we really wanted to get as part of the Wellness Collective and we've manifested them and here they are. Manifestation. (laughs) (laughs) Um, What's funny is this episode doesn't really have much to do with manifesting, but but the power of manifestation is, it's a thing. It definitely is a thing. And can I say, even to the point where... The other day, I happened to be in an op shop and (laughs) I went, I was like, oh, it's just killing a bit of time. And there was like a wellness section in the op shop. It was very organised, very well curated. I like a good curated op shop. (laughs) like a good curated. (laughs) Yes. Mm -hmm. So I went over to the wellness section and I thought, I wonder if any of Nat's old books might be here. And they weren't. And then I turned around and there on the end of the aisle (laughs) was your face on the front of a book that you'd made like 50 years ago. It's actually not that old, but yes. But the funny part of that was that it was actually a... um, a booklet. It was quite a thick book, actually, that came as part of like a whole pack of things. So they've just ditched that. Yeah. Don't need that. Don't need her. <laughs> but I loved it because I manifested uh, you. But you did. You said, I wonder if Nat's book's here. And here she was. There you were. I was like, I am blown away. Why didn't I manifest a thousand dollars? That would have been. No. Yeah, but isn't that always the way? It's like, Damn, I should have manifested money, not Nat's face on a book. No, anyway, I did love it. You're following me around, even just yep. checking I'm not spending money on things that are ridiculous. Well, definitely so don't spend money good. on that. So today we are talking to our guest. I don't want to give too much away, but it's all about love and relationships and the research she has put into years Lots and of years research. of research, finding out what makes us humans tick. And this is just going to be a ride. My name is Laura Muka. Hi, thank you for having me. And I uh, wrote a book called Love Factually, uh, The Science of Who, How and Why We Love. And I also write poetry and do some broadcast. I write poetry for kids mostly. How on earth did you come to writing this book about uh, the science of love and, and all the wonderful things? And, and tell us how you went on this journey, because you actually ended up being a bit like Forrest Gump, going around the world, speaking to every single person you could come across to do your research. How did that come about? (laughs) No one has ever told me that I was like Forrest Gump. But now that you say it, I'm like, that is so true. (laughs) Um, So I grew up with my mum and grandparents and my grandfather, who I called dad, died when I was 11. So I was left with these two excellent women, but no relationship. And not only did I have no relationship, I lost a very important person in my life, which impacts the way that you understand relationships. Although I didn't really understand that when I started out. So I, from quite a young age, started interrogating people about their relationships in a really probably inappropriate way to like my friend's parents. (laughs) Like, why did you get married? Do you ever think about cheating? How do you know if you want a divorce? Um, And I carried on doing this for years until I was in Argentina and I interviewed a guy who was 95, married for 75 years, middle of nowhere, speaking in Spanish. And I thought maybe other people would like to know what I'm hearing. So I bought my nifty little recorder and started recording conversations. Um, But I was doing it part-time as a lawyer. So every time I travelled, which was a lot, um, I would record an interview. 
And then I got hit by a car and uh, my heart stopped. And uh, the weekend after my heart stopped, I went to a spa weekend with my mum because obviously that is what you should do (laughs) after your heart stops. And I remember I was just in tears the whole time, really kind of bamboozled by it all. And I wrote a list of what I wanted to do before I die. And the first thing was finish this book. So that's what I did because I don't think any normal sane person would write a book like this because it's so much work. After writing a book, I've written four books myself. I don't know why anyone in their right mind actually would do that. <laughs> it's a lot of work and a lot of commitment and and many people don't write their own books anymore. They get a ghostwriter. They get someone to write it for them. But obviously you had researched so many people. How many do you think that you spoke to in order to bring this book to life? Well, I formally interviewed between three and 400 um, I kind of stopped taking count at about 300, but one day I should like write a neat table. Of yeah. <laughs> but I spoke to, well, God, I don't know, like maybe 50 academics to check because most academics zoom in on one area and then know everything about that one small area. And I wanted to look at everything. I had to get a lot of different academics to look at like five paragraphs to check that I wasn't getting it wrong. Um, and then also because of doing it, like people would just talk to me about love and relationships. So I went to a wedding and the wedding photographer came up to me and said, oh, you're writing a book about love. I'm thinking about cheating on my husband. What do you think I should do? You know, and I'd get that quite a lot. <laughs> and what did you say so now, when people were looking for advice? Um, I was just honest with her. I was like, I tried to say, okay, so what is it that you have with your current partner? What is it you have with this other person? What is it that you want in the long term? And it transpired that she had what she wanted in the long term with her current partner and what she had with the person she was tempted with was about three hours of contact time <laughs> and a huge <laughs> amount of idealization and some activation of the brain's reward system that it is a bit like taking drugs. So I was like, mm, maybe it's not an entirely fair comparison. <laughs> but, you know, infidelity is a very big umbrella word that includes lots of different uh, possibilities. And that was just one, you know, it might have been that she'd said, you know, this is my best friend and I've known him for, you know, 20 years and my partner is abusive and I want to leave, you know, like that, that would have been a very different answer. But in that particular example, I was like, dude, sort it out. (laughs) It's interesting that you went to infidelity straight away because um, I downloaded your book on Audible and I've been listening to you. So it's lovely to actually speak with you because you've been in my head for (laughs) last week or so anyway. That's like in chapter six or seven, infidelity. It takes a while to get to that, but I'm just at that point and there's some fascinating stuff about the way that we as human beings are really tempted by things that we we know we're not allowed to have. So that temptation is the thing that drives it, isn't it? Yeah. And I think with relationships generally, but also with infidelity, it's just a shame that we don't kind of talk about this stuff a bit more and that there are these deeply held views. Um, I use a phrase in the book called the they, but you know, that's something that the philosopher Heidegger came up with, but lots of different philosophers came up with it in their different ways. The idea of what the crowd thinks, what people think you should do. And the people don't approve of talking openly and non-judgmentally about infidelity. It's very, there's a lot of judgment around it. It's very, very taboo. But the irony, the deep irony for me is when you look at the numbers, 87, sorry, 88% of people in a US study of 2,025 people said it was absolutely unacceptable 
to cheat. But yet studies show that up to 72% of men and up to 70% of women have cheated. And, you know, I got obsessed with the numbers and tried to figure out exactly how many had. And in the end, I, I realized it doesn't really matter. And we'll never know because people don't want to admit to it because it's so stigmatized and they're worried that their partner will find out. And, you know, in one study, 30% initially admitted and then a further 30% confessed after intense therapy. So we know that people don't want to tell uh, you know, the, the researchers or anyone, um, but we do know that people cheat. So you have this situation where everyone or most people think it's terrible and most people have done it. And I just think it's ludicrous. Like, it's ludicrous. Um, anyway, so I, I think that we should be, you know, educating children uh, about relationships and we should be talking more about it so that, you know, in the case of the wedding photographer, if she's tempted, she can have an honest conversation about it with people who might be able to talk in an informed way rather than keep it secret, which makes it all the more alluring. So is that only really, and I did, um, I've kind of read bits and pieces of throughout that I got locked, we were just talking, I got locked out of the house today. So it was like, right, it's a sign to research (laughs) the crap out of this. (laughs) You know, what about in other cultures? And you also spoke about animals and in their natural environment, how many of them Really, I mean, I know we're not animals, but it was just oh, interesting. <laughs> well, talk, speak about yourself, because. <laughs> um, but but really, and also, yeah, in other cultures, how I guess as outsiders looking in, we've always again just gone, "Oh, that's for them, and that's not us." Where there's actually, when you say something like seventy percent of people, roughly across the board, seventy percent have done it. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a conversation I think that needs to be had, and not only that, I think also. It's a little bit like I did an interview today and and obviously my latest book's around teen sexual and reproductive health and we were talking about how that was once a taboo subject. Mm. We didn't talk about it and and now we are. And so I wonder if we keep on having this conversation, if we can then open up, you know, what will the conversation be in 20 years' time maybe around these topics Mm. because it's important to talk about. Like you said, it's just that we don't do it and it's also has been deemed inappropriate from generations before us. Well, and also... I don't think we had the research, you know, until maybe the 80s um, around certain areas that I think are hugely important. And even though some of those theories came about, for example, attachment theory, actually it took a couple of decades for the evidence to build up and for people to really understand how important that was. So attachment theory is one of the most researched areas of psychology. And I say that at the start because... Some of it sounds a bit far-fetched and it requires buy-in, but there's a huge amount of evidence behind it. The basic premise is that we are all very individual in the way that we approach relationships. So it's not like one way of seeing or remembering or paying attention to that fits all. Um, The way that we experience relationships is largely determined by our upbringing, but not entirely. So bereavement, um, breakups, trauma, abuse... Uh, long-term relationships, they can all change the way that we experience our relationships and our attachment style, to use attachment lingo. So 58% of the population, based on a review of more than 200 studies of 10,500 people, found that 58% of people are secure. And secure attachment means you're comfortable with intimacy, commitment comes easily, you're realistic, uh, you don't really get freaked out. Relationships are just no big deal and you're less likely to have mental health problems. Basically, secure attachment is really good news in a lot a lot of ways, not just in relationships. 
Then there are three other types, but I'll only talk about two because one is a bit complicated and relates to abuse. Um, so the, the main, well, I say the main two, the two that I will talk about are anxious and avoidant. So avoidant attachment is what I had before <laughs> writing this book. So, I, you know, I'm very familiar with it personally. Um, it's true of 23% of the population and it basically involves an idealization of independence. So the best way to look at it is to see that someone who is avoidant or highly avoidant because you're on a scale associates love with loss. And so they want to only rely on themselves. To do that, they puff themselves up and they project their vulnerabilities onto other people and don't see them in themselves. The reason for that is because if you're the only person you're prepared to rely on, you need to see yourself as pretty amazing and pretty invulnerable. So they don't connect with their emotions. Uh, often when bad things happen, they somaticize, so it comes out in their body. Um, and they find ways for breaking up with people uh, and just generally finding problems with people. Um, so that's avoidant and they need space. They crave space. Anxious is, is the other type and is essentially in some ways the absolute opposite. So it's true of 19% of the population and they, instead of not connecting with their emotions, are overly connected, particularly when it comes to threat. So they're very sensitive to threat. And once they've sensed a threat, they're not very good at calming themselves down. So they're very sensitive. They've got a, a very vigilant smoke detector, and then they don't put the smoke detector out. And that can be what some people call needy or clingy in a relationship because they're worrying that their partner's cheating. If their partner's unavailable, they're worrying that it's because they're not loved. You know, it's very, they personalize everything. If their partner's not available, they can then go into what psychologists call protest behavior, which is basically angry, frustrated attempts to get close. So it might sound a bit like, well, if you don't want to speak to me, I don't want to speak to you. Or you were too busy for me, I'm too busy for you, you know? And, and it, that ironically, even though it doesn't achieve it, is, is aimed at getting close to their partner. So the other thing is just as avoidant people want space more than absolutely anything, anxious people want to be close. So when they're stressed out, they want to be close. And when you get an anxious avoidant pairing, it's, um, it, it forms a bit of a chase withdrawal cycle. So the anxious person, the, and I say anxious as in anxious attachment style, it's not the same as just anxious generally. The person with an anxious attachment style will want to be close. And then the avoidant person will go, whoa, I don't like being needed. I need some space, man. And then the anxious person will go, hey, where are you? I want to be close. <laughs> and then the avoidant person will be like, oh man, I need my space. So, and, and that's what happens over and over again. Whereas the person with an anxious attachment style was with someone secure, they'd go, ah, I need to be close. And the secure person would go, okay. Hmm. And then everything would calm down. And then over time, the theory is, if you have an insecure, so avoidant or anxious person with someone secure, over, over time they become secure. But avoidant people are very good at breaking up with partners. Yeah. So they don't always get to the point where they become secure. Mm, so oh. interesting. I love that we're all ticking along in these little boxes <laughs> that we don't know. That yet well, it's like a gonna, bulb goes on. We're going to know now because we're listening to this Absolutely. and we're learning all about it. I want to understand a little bit more about how we know whether we lust for somebody or we love somebody. Well, I think that's a really good and a really difficult question. And <laughs> I interviewed a philosopher called Simon Blackburn uh, at Cambridge and he and I had this great conversation because uh, when I studied philosophy at university, quite a lot of um, philosophers would look into, you know, whether we exist. <laughs> <I was> like, <laughs> 
You know, I'm just going to assume that we exist. I'm more interested in philosophizing about relationships. And there aren't that many who are interested in philosophizing about love. So this guy and I talked about the idea that you can't necessarily tell at the time. So when you're in it, you don't necessarily know about it. It's something that you only know with hindsight. And that means really that time is the key to making good decisions. So the research on it suggests that early romantic love or lust, and I say early or early love or lust, because a lot of the research relies on people, on asking people if they're in love. And you and people, you know, what does that mean? You know, some people say they're in love when they're in lust, and some people say they're in love when they're actually in love. So it's a bit fuzzy. We don't really know what we're measuring. But in those early stages the brain's reward system is activated and it's the same part of the brain that's activated if you take cocaine or amphetamines. Wow. So, so would lust you has the same life, effect yeah, as drugs. Would you make lifelong decisions like having a child, buying a property, getting married when you were off your face on amphetamines? Well, some people Do might. <laughs> I think it's been done in the, the past. The question is, should you? <laughs> no, we've been do, have you? <laughs> so the idea, my kind of position on this is the best approach is to wait for the drugs to wear off and then to see if you were in lust or in love. And I interviewed people around the world who made really bad decisions. Some made good, but many made bad. Like Eleanor, who was, um, I met in Paris and she was Irish and she was in a wheelchair and she had multiple sclerosis. And she attributed that to the breakup of her marriage from someone that she was in lust with and not in love with. And I've looked up the cause of MS and we don't really know, but you know, it's all a bit unclear, but I think, what her view was that she experienced a huge amount of stress. She had to move country when they broke up. She, you know, they had to sell their property. And so I think this whole knowing the difference or at least just being uh, conscious of time is really important for avoiding. And I know it's hard to put a time frame on, but we say the stages of lust obviously becoming love. I guess that's different for everybody body like how do we <laughs> how do we know day. when we've moved from one to the next or can you move from one to the other so there are two types of love I think there's romantic which is the early stage and then there's companionate which is the later stage and companionate is basically like friendship deep profound admiration and a deep attraction not necessarily I want to tear your pants off with my teeth right now but I mean just that pants I use the word pants for like underwear do you yeah, use pants no, for dress? we know you can, you can we get it I totally get what you mean. I did anything, have a picture of like jeans though, which is a bit hard with your I just teeth. picture anything really on the lower body. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> undies. We go the undies. So yeah, you t- take your anything on the lower body, including undies with your teeth. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that um, you don't necessarily have that in the long term. You might, it might come in waves, but it won't happen as much. And there's a lot of research around that, you know, national studies asking people how much sex they've had in the last month that shows on the whole, there's a decline in lust. But the studies around the early stages don't come up with consistent results because depending on what they measure, they come up with different times. So, you know, you measure serotonin levels versus brain activity, you get a different answer. So on the whole, I would say a couple of years, but it's hard. It's hard. I don't think we have the science to know the answer. And it may be that it's not the same for everyone. Mm. Um, but, but, what what I what philosopher Simon Blackburn said that made me chuckle is if you suddenly realise that the person you're dating is a twerp, 
Do you use that word? Twerp? Yeah, yep. that's good. We love now. that. Twerp, then uh, maybe what, what you were feeling was lust. Yeah, I think so. And if the word twerp gets into your head, then that's, that's definitely so funny. Speaking hey, of that, yes, I was going to say we need to take a break, but we will be right back after this. We're here talking with Laura Mooker. Have I said that correctly? Mm, Author of um, the best book I've read in ages, The Science of Who, How, and Why We Love. Love Factually. A very good read, especially if you want to listen to her. Read it to you. Even better. (laughs) Now, one thing that I came across in your book that made me just go, oh, that's so right, is this whole idea of when you meet someone and the factors that are at play that can make that person be attractive or not. So especially in this world where there's a lot of online dating and stuff that goes on, Tinder dates, uh, you know, so that first impression of when you see someone in person is when you've already got a bit of a preconceived idea of them. That is huge, isn't it, when you think about it? Mm. But it's not just how they look on the night, is it, or how many glasses of wine you've had. There's (laughs) lots of other things that can shape the way we feel about them. Yeah, so one of my favourites was a discovery of research that confirmed that alcohol makes us find people more attractive. <laughs> Good to know that it's actually. I a can't believe it's not just I me. Know that someone bothered to research that. Alcohol <laughs> uh, is me too. Everyone's attractive when I have some alcohol. Um, so I uh, I found this particularly interesting because I think, and you know more about this than I do, but I had no idea how powerful periods and the menstrual cycle were and you know it's it's transformative like to the extent that now I pay attention to you know when I want to buy something you know I'm like oh I wonder where I am in my ovulatory cycle so I I, the, the research on this is very interesting if you're a woman or if you want to be in a relationship with a woman then this is highly relevant to you basically to frame it there was a study of lap dancers in Albuquerque and they measured the equivalent of 5,300 lap dancers. The lap dancers had no idea when they were on their period, when they weren't. They didn't really pay attention to any of it. They just carried on as they did. And the researchers discovered that the uh, lap dancers made twice as much when they were ovulating. And possibly that included the first few days before, I can't remember, compared to when they were on their period. Twice as much they were now, getting in there at that time. <laughs> it was just like the gyrating was like, woohoo. <laughs> well, well, so it's, uh, it's almost. And there's other research that suggests that, you know, men, when they are given um, T-shirts to smell and they don't know who it is that they're smelling the T-shirt of or, you know, or what it is they're smelling, have increased levels of testosterone when they sniff the T-shirts of women who are highly fertile compared to those who aren't. And women have generally got different preferences in a partner depending on where they are. So they like more masculine and dominant men when they're fertile um, than when they're not. And that, I think, is... uh, really interesting and relevant because I bet it, well, I mean, it's not something I would ever have thought about. Do you know what's interesting is that there's been research done into women who are on the pill, the oral oral contraceptive pill, and how it Mm. alters this. Obviously, it flatlines your hormones, so you're not getting this dance between um, ovulation and your period. And what they found is that 
we have receptors in our nose that when we are on the pill are turned off mm-hmm. and these are called couplins and that's actually what is what, what we're talking about, I think, and it's what attracts you to somebody. So what's effectively the theory is that if you are on the pill Maybe you're with somebody who you would not have otherwise been attracted to because you haven't had that wow. that pheromone release. Yeah. Mm. So women that come into the clinic all the time, and I tell I've told them this, or they've <laughs> they've read that I've written this somewhere, and they're like, "So do I need to leave my partner?" And I'm like, "I wouldn't be that drastic, but." maybe we're being attracted to people who we wouldn't otherwise be attracted to because our radar is off. And then to add another layer to that, are they actually a suitable partner for procreation? Because we are living at a time where lots of people are trying to have babies and not able to, and maybe you're matching yourself up with somebody who maybe isn't compatible. Just a theory. Yeah, so there, there was there is some research, although I think we're not as far into that research as we need to be for me to make firm conclusions and I liaised with this excellent um guy at Oxford called Tristram who's all over this personal scent stuff he's brilliant and I love that these people bother to read my paragraphs you know like they've got enough on their plate there's some research where um basically you sniff out someone's personal scent not their pheromones their personal scent to find out whether they have well you don't know you're doing this uh but you sniff out whether they have an immune system that is complementary to yours or not. Um, the idea is that the same genes that determine your personal scent also determine your immune system. And I think that's extraordinary. I mean, you just have no idea what's going on. But also, if all of this science does with time stand up, then what we're saying is that initial connection or chemistry has very, very little to do with whether you share values, whether (laughs) they will be a good, committed partner, if that's what you're after, whether they will be abusive or not, you know, like whether they will be kind. It has to do with your body subconsciously trying to figure out whether you can make babies well. I love it because it's like mind over matter. What do we follow? Do we... I think there has to be a combination of all of that, really, doesn't it? You mean you have to be attracted to somebody and then... It goes from there. And then I guess if then you, you put all those up. First. Well, then no, you are. That's exactly what you're <laughs> oh, saying, you though. You are. When you're yeah, attracted yeah. to someone, that's exactly what yeah. you're saying, Laura, is that you don't even know you're doing that, but you're doing that. Then yeah. you get to profile them whether they're appropriate <laughs> or not. I think that's what's going on here, isn't it? It's like, yeah. first of all, oh, I could like you. You radiate something that's attractive to me subconsciously. You don't even know you're doing it. And then over time, over the last period, you get to work, work out whether or not out. you're my person or not. And then and you go from there. Well, some of the other things too that I thought were fascinating was that the music that's on and the temperature of the room can also be factors <laughs> as to whether you find someone attractive. <laughs> yeah, but, but this makes perfect sense to me because I find I love music, but it can be it can really influence my mood. And so, like when I'm writing sad poetry, I listen to sad music. When I'm trying to, you know, go to the gym, I listen to uplifting music with a beat. And when I'm in a restaurant or wherever where it's really loud, uncomfortable, I can't hear anyone, the music's terrible, I'm, I get a bit grumpy. And that grumpiness does, like if it was a first meeting, that would, you know, it's not surprising <laughs> to me that that would influence. I mean, it was a small, the music study was a very, very small study. 
but the influence of music is not something that's new. Like retail environments, they they know that music influences us and they choose it very carefully to keep us in shops longer. Well, I think also the element of that is that if you were with somebody who was your person, they'd be irritated by the music as well and you'd be like, let's get out of here. <laughs> It's time to leave. Let's, let's hit the road, Jack. Um, can I bring attachment theory into this? Yes, please. Because I think it's really relevant. If you, when you were saying that like at the early stages, lots of things happen and you don't really know if you're aware of them, let's imagine you have an anxious attachment style and you generally want to be close to someone. If you meet someone who's avoidant, then very unknowingly from quite early stages, they can kind of activate your attachment system because they want space and that's their way of being. And that can feel exciting. That can feel like chemistry or spark when it's not necessarily. It's just someone is making you more anxious than you normally are by their natural preferred state of being unavailable. So there's all sorts of things, I think, that, you know, and then there's this whole sense of, you know, what to you feels like home? What did you grow up with, you know? And what what feels really familiar? And sometimes I think it takes a lot of digging around and dark, swirly stuff to figure out whether what you're kind of subconsciously attracted to is is actually helpful or not. I just had a penny drop then. I, was just like, <laughs> I get it now. I've Good job. <laughs> looked at my husband, I'm like, right. I've got this. Figured it out. <laughs> I've got a couple more questions here. Love at first sight. Is that a thing? So I am really boring and old <laughs> and miserable and I think no. So the reason I say that is, so basically lots of people think at the beginning that they are in love at first sight, but only some of those turn out to be right. And for every person that thinks they're in love at first sight and continues in their relationship, I have found there are many more who think they're in love at first sight and got it really, really wrong. <laughs> and so I, I, it comes back again, I guess, to how you define love. And if you think that time is a requirement of love, which I think it is because I think love requires intimacy and vulnerability and a knowledge of each other that I don't think you can get from just seeing someone across the room, then love at first sight can't exist because the time isn't there. But what can exist is... A, a connection, a really deep attraction, some sniffing out <laughs> stuff, some good music. Um, and also the potential, a very high potential for it to be love. Um, but also for me, I think there's a bit of a policy decision there because if I were to say, I think love first sight exists, then I would essentially be encourage, I would be encouraging taking risks or making big commitments when I don't think you can trust what's going on because it's, you know, as we've discussed, your body is basically doing the equivalent of being high on drugs. And <laughs> I just don't think it's it's sensible. You know, that's why I say I sound old and grumpy. I don't think it's no. sensible. <laughs> it isn't sensible. It's a very British approach too, isn't it? To do things in a sensible <laughs> way. I like that. You've taken it somewhat. Oh, no. Um <laughs> <laughs> How did you feel by the time you'd spoken to your millionth person? Did you just have a like a card that you walked up and said, hi, I'm here to talk about your relationships. Are you ready? <laughs> <laughs> no, it, you know, I, I loved it. Like I, part of it was a bit, I feel a bit of dread before I went up to someone because I would worry, worry that they would reject me. And it was a bit like cold calling in person, like, <laughs> hi, can I interview you? Can I ask you really intimate questions? <laughs> um, but then once we were having a conversation, it was wonderful. It was just 
so lovely because it was just like a really honest, no one's trying to be cool. No one's trying to look clever. We're just having an honest conversation in the per- for the purposes of doing something that we think should exist. Right. And, and it was, it was, it was lovely. And then often when people sent me their contact details and not everyone did, then I would send them, you know, their excerpts to check they were happy. And so, for example, I'm going to bring up infidelity again, sorry. There was a lady in Portugal whose husband cheated on her with four people for seven years. So like all at the same time. He was a busy man. Mm. Yeah, I know. I mean, logistically, how do you do that? Anyway, she um, cried during our interview, which I felt terrible about. And I sent her a copy of the infidelity chapter and she was like you know what I was really worried actually about how this would happen I hadn't talked to anyone about it in eight years but I think you've done it brilliantly and I think I know this book isn't meant to be self-help but I think it will be helpful for people it's been helpful for me and so it felt really lovely it felt like this really kind of collaborative process and I I sort of missed that except I still get it because everyone talks to me about my relationship and now I get strangers getting in touch which I love on like email or Instagram or whatever, sending me little messages and saying, you know, I, d- I did a talk and, um, and then bumped into the person, one of the people who was at the talk. And I thought I knew her, but I, I didn't. I'd just seen her at the talk. She came up to me and she said, I went to uh, your talk and then I read your book and then I divorced my husband. Oh, <laughs> oh yeah. Oops. Oh my God. <laughs> <laughs> but then we had a really amazing conversation about how he was emotionally abusive, you know, and like, these conversations are important and I, and, and I think it's about what makes us human and what un- unites us. And so I find it really, um, really life affirming. There's something quite cathartic about having a really intimate conversation with a stranger as well. Yes, mm. I agree with that. Like sometimes, yeah, you can, yeah. you can find yourself telling someone <laughs> something that you know you're never going to see again, things that you would not tell your friends, your family, anything, because there's this element of, well, well what... I'm never going to see you yeah, again and, and, and bump into them again. Yes, yeah, at the <laughs> book signing. Until it's published in a book. Uh-huh. The, other thing, the other thing I would say is I think it's um, really important and what I always try to do is to be non-judgmental because I think that, you know, if you're being – and I think it's important for therapists and friends and everyone. Like it's if, life if experience friend, too, isn't it? Yeah, like – the moment judgment comes into the picture, people won't want to tell you things because they think they'll be judged and then you won't have an honest conversation. And half the time when you're judging, it's, it's to do with some of your stuff, you know? Well, you're so I think not really listening is, either if you're judging, are yeah. you? You're probably, mm. and I think part of, we can tell Point. that, you know, in your desire to want to do this, you were obviously listening to what people had to say. Yeah, and that's yeah, where they yeah. were, they gave you that information because they trusted you and, and you, that was like the, that was the exchange, I think. You know, you yeah. were exchanging information because yeah. you were listening to them where maybe in the past they had been judged or dismissed. Mm. Yeah. And, and very, very often, I'd say in the majority of cases, people would say, thank you. I found that really therapeutic mm. and you know they had many hadn't talked about things for years and years and years and were surprised to find themselves talking about it and it felt it really felt um like a, a privilege you know and wouldn't it be nice if if we would all just somehow magically have more 
less judgmental, more honest and more informed conversations about relationships, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think that's why they started talking to me in the first place, because that's what I said I was trying to do when I approached them out of the blue. Did anyone flat out tell you to just nick off? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, God, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, no, sorry. Yeah. You're not uh, my person. <laughs> yeah. I got 66 straight yeses and then 67, I got a no. Oh. And I went and sat down on the pavement outside and cried. I, I like, would do oh that my too. God, my project is terrible. <laughs> I would do. Oh. <laughs> and then it was fine. And then I got loads of yeses. And then occasionally I would get a no, and it would make me feel small and shriveled and awful. But it was okay. Laura, could you tell our listeners where they can access your book and you, and um, so that they can find out more? Yeah. Um, so I have a website, which is by name, lauramuka.com. Um, my book is in all good bookstores. Yeah. And um, you can also listen to me read it. On it's Audible, very good. Although that is weird because it's like having me in your head. Thank, Thank you, you so, so much. much. Oh, that was in unison. Yeah, double <laughs> awesome. It was amazing. <laughs> I, I think I'm a little bit of a fangirl now. I can see that you might be a little bit of a fangirl. Well, I'll finish girl. the book and then I'll see how I feel. Oh, yeah, <laughs> maybe. Maybe see how you go after all of that. But truly, I think, yeah, just this whole idea that we need to talk more about all of this, right? Mm-hmm. We need to have these conversations. And what I particularly loved is that whole let's not be judgmental idea. Oh, that, you absolutely. Know, that, yeah, it's just interesting. There's hmm. some, especially the stuff about um, infidelity in terms of judge, judgment. There was, mm. a, a, I know, one interview that she did that she didn't mention there, but it was a woman who had been married for many, many years and her husband played golf and then he started playing golf with a really young woman who was 30 years younger than his wife and they ended up going to all these golf courses around the world and he, he was having an affair with this woman mm under the guise of playing golf. And in the end, the woman said, but we have children and a life together and I love him, so we will stay together. And I thought, no judgment because everybody has a different take Mm -hmm. on what's going on Mm -hmm. in their life. And I was like, that's really interesting. Absolutely. You You know what else is interesting? Sounds like it's very tiring to do interesting. Yes. We have another review. Bring it I on. know, right? I want to read it. Okay. And we love these. And, of course, we encourage you to please leave us a review or at least rate the podcast. And there's just no pressure. Just five stars <laughs> is all we're looking for. No um, pressure. So this is by Keh85. Good. <laughs> I've just finished the episode with Pinky McKay. Loved it. As a mum that struggled with breastfeeding and really didn't love the newborn phase, amen, I wish I heard this back then. Also, the Keeping Your Loved Ones Safe series was great too. Keep up the great work, ladies. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. I do particularly get a little bit excited. In fact, maybe a little <laughs> slightly wet my pants when I see a new <laughs> review. <laughs> you do. Oh, bing. It's like I know. Well, actually, we were just about to record this and I was like, oh, my goodness, there's a new review. Yeah. We need to read that. So thank you very much. Yes. This has been heavy going, but you know, a bit longer than usual, but definitely worthwhile. Big thanks to Laura Mooker. What a delightful, beautiful person she is. And and we did get to see her face while we recorded that. So we'll put that on our Insta because she is just light. The life of the world. She totally is. Totally. So yeah, time for you to head off and do what else you've got to do. Time for us to head off and maybe can we sneak off for a wine? Yeah, let's do that. (laughs) Until next time, we hope this episode of The Wellness Collective has made you feel more lustful. Oh, more lustful and happier. Healthier. And better. And better. Okay. (laughs) 